Welcome to She's the Boss Chats. I'm your host, Jules Brooke, and in the show, I interview amazing women and female founders about what it is that they're doing and why they're doing it. It's all about us lifting up the women around us. Renata Squario, I am so excited to to be able to share your story because you're an incredible woman. Uh, But thank you so much for agreeing to do a She's the Boss Chats interview. Thank you so much for having me, Jules. I know we've been talking about this one for a while, so it feels really great to be, yeah, on the um, yeah, on the two ends. Talking. That's right, great. that's right. In fact, I think we met at the Prosecco Festival, but we won't go into that one. <laughs> I know. Well, that was a really great day, wasn't it? Was it was a really anyway. great day. Okay, so how about we start off? Why don't you tell everybody what you're doing and why? Well, I am currently in my 50s and a startup, a very proud uh, founder, thanks, uh, (laughs) of a company called MaxMe. And at MaxMe, we're all around uh, maximising human potential globally and really specifically through this lens of the development uh, of human skills. Now, they're sometimes known as soft skills. I don't like that term. It sounds a bit weak, doesn't it? Soft skills. Well, it's not soft. No. They're, they're actually the really hard <laughs> skills right. to develop, ironically. And the most important. So we've moved to, exactly, and they are, I was going to say, because uh, they are the make or break skills of the digital age, actually, and every think tank globally is saying the same thing now. Yeah. So we, we're excited to be in market. We're, we're not in market because of that. We were always uh, going to launch and, and sort of take up our, our vision and our promise of democratisation of these skills because the reality is most people don't get taught these skills at school. No, and, and, get taught the skills. and before we go any further Please talking go. about all these skills, do you want to just explain what, what, what it is that you're teaching? What are soft skills? Yeah, look, they're all anchored to this concept of emotional intelligence. We know globally the research will tell you that a person that has high EQ or or emotional intelligence is four times more likely to be successful. So we, uh, you know, underpinning what we can term as emotional intelligence, because most of the time when you ask people, they actually don't know what it is. But uh, it really is all around self-awareness and then the management of yourself. And once you've discovered who you are, what your strengths are, what your derailers are, uh, then you kick into the so what and the now what. We help people to really practically develop a sense of how do I turn up as the best version of myself. Right. And then that that's what we call the world of me. And then when they're working in the world of we, which is much, much, it's going to be more and more complex to do that, but an absolute must-have as the robots take over. Yes. Um, <laughs> or don't. So, Or don't. But, like, we're going to have to work in that world and the world, uh, that world will require us to solve complex problems. So you can't do that on your own. So you do have to turn up in the world of we. Yeah. And in the world of we, it's how do I develop a stronger sense of empathy? How do I actually know how to communicate well? How to engage well? How to build trust and rapport? How to actually work with people that are different to me and be able to solve these complex problems from multiple perspectives? Because we know it's hard to do yeah. that. And so we actually and very practically teach the skills on how to be really, really much better across all of those all those quadrants, I guess, and ultimately be more emotionally intelligent. Absolutely incredible. And I'm so glad you explained it because you explain it really well. Who are you targeting in this? Who's your sort of target market for this? Such a good question because, you know, at the end of the day, if you set your sights on something too big, then you're ultimately probably going to fail if it's too too big. Yeah, setting yourself up for failure. 
Because we know, we know these uh, skills are not taught at school, not taught in tertiary, and even in workplaces, we know that traditionally only a very small percentage of people in workplaces get this development. You either have to be a leader or on a talent program, and we know that's always a very small percentage. So... In in the current, in our current kind of, uh, you know, where we are, uh, we started with a hypothesis around schools and unis but had to move away from that quickly because of a very traditional uh, education pathway that's very difficult to infiltrate. Yes. Uh, and so we started actually on the other side, right, when people get to work and they're starting to have these crises or these quarter-life crises as we discovered in our research – where you realise that all of the work you've put into your education didn't get you the skills that you actually need to be successful at work. And that's really quite stark and upsetting, I guess, for people if they don't know that that's the reality. And so we're very practically going in and changing lives. And I know I say that flippantly, but it means a lot to us. It's very humbling to see the sort of results we're seeing with our clients. Can you give me me a little story, a a little example? What do you mean... Um, when you say the sorts of results, just, I don't know, you must have a really good one at hand that you can just tell me the story of. Yeah, and, and we ask, we're hearing from people who come up to us all the mm. time and are using language like, this has changed my complete perspective on myself. Now, wow. I'm not talking about people who are brand new to life, right? These are people who are well and truly into their careers, yep. uh, knew that there was stuff missing, knew that they were having that disengaged, lacking purpose, not sure how to have a difficult conversation. How do I get myself out of this rut that I'm in? Or how do I truly turn up as a positive version of myself all the time? Because we all want to do that. Yeah. Right? No one comes yeah. to work to be disruptive. Uh, so, you know, we've got people just saying, hey, this has really completely sort of changed my perspective. But also, like, percentage-wise, because I love data, you know, we've got upward of 90% of people saying, hey, I never really knew what my strengths were. Like, I knew that I had, you know, things that I was better yeah. at than other things, but I can now name them. I know I'm more confident about using them. I can actually work much better with others. I can have those yes. challenging conversations and feel good about them. All of the percentages that we're seeing of people, because we do survey people, what get me- what you know, we don't want to do anything that's not measurable. Yep. So we do measure and we do ask, and we're just seeing a really sort of humbling uh, set of results coming out of the clients we're working with. Well, I'm not surprised because when I met you, I always thought that you were super kind and giving, and this is absolutely you know perfect for you and their skills that everybody needs to be able to get ahead. And I love it that they're discovering themselves as well. Okay. Thanks, Joel. <coughs> so, now I want to talk all about you. Yes. Are you ready? <laughs> I'm ready. Okay, so let's start off with where did you grow up? Um, what size family did you have and what did your mum and dad do? So, Jules, I am a migrant. Yes. Uh, I was born in the Ukraine. Ah, okay. And uh, my parents migrated here when I was six years old and they literally are the quintessential two-suitcase, $200 in the pocket people. Yeah, right. People. Yeah. Uh, we were the first of our family to leave the USSR at the time uh, and I think, not to want to make this political and it's not, I think the world is seeing why my parents had to leave. Mm. If you think about Russian control over the geography at the time, um, you know, my parents speak Russian, I speak Russian because even though I was born in the Ukraine, Russia was taught in all the schools across the USSR. So there was no, there was nothing other than Russia, mighty Russia. And look, you know, some of my friends are Russian, so I've got no problem with the country, but certainly, uh, you know, they had to make their way out of there. Yep. 
they found themselves in a lucky country like Australia and my parents have blessed every day. How did they end up here? Was that just told to them or did they choose? No, they they actually had to leave the USSR as refugees and they were sponsored over here by an organisation at the time that was helping people to migrate out of situations like that into countries like Australia that were taking migrants. Now, my parents were both skilled migrants, so one thing they can... um, sort of thank Russia or the USSR for is the quality of education. Education was a non-negotiable and, you know, reality is in a communist country at least everybody gets educated. So they both came highly credentialed but like most migrants couldn't work in their area of credential. And so, so frustrating. Cleaned houses. My mum started, even though she was a fully qualified chef, she started cleaning kitchens and cleaning people's houses just to get some, uh, you know, ability to have that financial freedom. And, uh, you know, I'm really happy to say that my parents, again, the quintessential migrant hardworking story, were able to work three jobs and then find their professional pathways. And, you know, my dad, it's interesting, people say to me, oh, why did you leave corporate yeah. to do a startup? And the reality is corporate is not in my blood. Small business is in my yeah, blood. Right. All of my family, and I've got a family of 80 people now in Australia because, you know, one called the next one, the next one called the next one, and everybody sponsored each other to get right. here. Uh, but they're all small business owners. I don't have many relatives that have t- trodden the corporate uh, life. It's really only myself, my sister and a couple of my cousins. Right. So really the role that, modelling that, has all been around own your own business. Absolutely. And so I say to people all the time, it just it took me to nearly uh, get to my 50s <laughs> to realise that actually I was in my heart, I was an entrepreneur. So um, anyway, and so look, I grew up here. We were very lucky. The schooling system um, accepted me and I was able to have a private school education. And this is Melbourne. Even though my parents this is Melbourne. Go, this is yeah. Melbourne, exactly. Uh, so, you know, really high quality private school education, but my parents couldn't afford to pay. So I was like, whatever the scholarship equivalent was that all those years ago, it certainly wasn't as fancy as these days, but, you know, they were, they subsidised my yeah, education right. and I was really lucky to, to have uh, received and, such a And were you an only education. child? Uh, I actually was an only child till I was the age of 11. Oh, then they had an Aussie um, baby. And, and then I actually have two sisters. Oh, right. So one sister is 11 years younger than me and the other one is 16 years, wow. years younger than me. And people uh, often ask me, oh, are you uh, the child of a first marriage? I'm like, no. But, um, you know, tragically my mum uh, unfortunately had a late stage of miscarriage uh, when my other sister, who uh, was nine years uh, younger right. than me, uh, so I would have had a fourth sister with that nine-year age difference. And so my mum uh, was able to, yes, thank God, have a, a, a second child when uh, when, when I was yeah. 11 and then my other sister. When, and I I always joke with my baby sister that I could be her mum and <laughs> she's told me in not so many words that she I am not her mum. No. And, and that, so to basically back off. Yes, and 11 I, years would make you a very young mum, let's be honest. If there's a, no, no, the 16. Oh, the 16. Yeah, the 16 well, okay, so in theory. Um, and I also think that the not only what they were escaping from Russia but also coming here and trying to establish themselves makes it natural that they weren't going to go, let's just have a baby now when we don't know where our income's coming, we don't know where we're going to live. So that, that was it makes enormous sense. Okay, and then 100%. what about primary school? Did you enjoy school? Were you good at school? 
I, I actually love school, but I love the social aspect of it. <laughs> I'm I, not surprised. I, I have just, <laughs> right. So I've always been an extrovert. I've always loved, uh, you know, in my top strengths, and we talk about strengths, so it's right that I should know mine. Yes. I have leadership. I have love. You know, I've got zest, which is the, you know, the strength of energy. So I've always been that person, probably from a young age, uh, um, I guess people have always described me as being probably mature. I've always been mature. I've always been able to hold uh, great conversations with adults as I have with peers. And I've loved to get to know people. I really love all human aspects. So, of course, it's no surprise that I've chosen this pathway later on in my life. I've never worked in HR. I've never studied HR, but I have studied to be a coach. I've done a lot of research, a lot of development around this concept of, of humans. Okay, well, now don't to... jump ahead of yourself because we're only in sorry, primary school sorry. at the moment. <laughs> okay, great. But I guess I was always like yeah, that, right. right? I was probably the leader of the pack. I was a bit of a, a rat bag, but not from a bat. Like I wasn't ever uh, disruptive. I just was a bit cheeky and I had that, you know, energy and that zest and that willingness to challenge. And Well, and, I you think know, that comes in, that if, if you've got half a brain, Really, and hmm. you are encouraged in a school where they are good with leadership and they are about empowering the students, then it's natural that you're... I mean, I was at a, a girls' school and all of us had a terrific education, but I wouldn't like to have been one of our teachers, really, because we were very smart and if they kind of did something <laughs> stupid, we were very happy to jump on it and make them feel bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, it's the condition, isn't it? I don't know how teachers do it, to no, be honest. No, they but, deserve um, more than... No, no, look... And, I loved school. I actually it was interesting. My parents, um, uh, I was in the private system yep. growing up, uh, but my parents did take me out into a public school. Is this primary uh, primary I, level or are we in, in high school primary, now? Yeah. In, in primary. And uh, I really struggled. Uh, as Even with all of those traits, uh, I only spent one semester there or one term. Yep. And, and most of the time I, I hid in the toilet, actually, because uh, unfortunately, and I remember this, I don't remember much from my childhood and obviously my parents have filled in the gap, but they, you know, they were forced to take me out because, you know, I, I think that the, the level of, uh, I don't think I was really uh, included very much um, right. in, in that one term and, and I was probably made fun of and, and felt uh, a sense of, yeah, a kind of Fish fear, out of I water guess. a bit fish out of water and so my parents realised and that's probably the pivotal point for them because they were first-time parents on the degree of importance of culture of the school and the, the, the level of connection that children have to feel to their school, to their peers, to, to give them that ability to flourish and, and to be happy at school. And yeah, nice. I've learnt a lot about that as, my, as a parent yeah. as well, actually, from my own experience. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Okay, so you finished primary school. Whereabouts in Melbourne were you, by the way? Uh, so we've always lived Bayside okay. and I went to school in St Kilda. Okay. Oh, yeah. lucky you. I would have thought that was very cool. Um, I, well, I guess back in those days maybe it was a, a little bit Definitely. more challenging. No, no, it was always. No, no, really we've arty. always, you know, I, again, I'm the child of migrants. So we don't really, I grew up on Westbury Street, uh, you know, in St Kilda, in a small flat. You know, my parents, like I said, yeah. we, we definitely yeah. we trod that. We, we, that was the path that we walked. Uh, so I was really happy. I was always happy with everything that kind of came my way and never sort Great. of felt Okay, well, let's talk about to... high school then. So was high sure. school the same delightful experience? In high school, it was interesting. Like I started high school uh, very much of the belief that I was going to be a barrister. Oh. Like, you know, I... 
Uh, I, the path for me was the law path, but not the boring kind of, uh, you know, all what the solicitors do. I want to be out in uh, front of Law and Order. <laughs> I think Law and Order was the show at the time, so I probably was influenced yes, by that. But I'm sure we all were. I definitely, you know, probably from a very young age, in year seven, thought that's what I'm doing. I'm just working towards right. doing wow. a law degree and then becoming a barrister and, of course, a QC and... You know, from a young age, I was probably quite motivated to get yeah. the best out of myself. Now, unfortunately, that didn't always get matched by study. <laughs> so I was always one of those people that thought, like, how hard could this be? I'm just going to wing it. And I look, to be honest with you, it probably still defines my attitude to life. I've definitely got a how, you know, what's the worst thing that could happen? Just give it yes, a go. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and, you know, I, I probably didn't, you know, uh, I, certainly in the outcome from my year 12 year, I didn't get into law. Right. But to be honest with you, by year 12, I didn't want to do law anymore anyway. I knew uh, probably from the year 11 year that I wanted to go into business. And right. That's probably Why? where... What, what had, who had you seen in business that gave you that idea? Yeah, it's such a good... Look, uh, to be honest, my mum and my dad were both really big role models for different reasons. Yep. Again, my dad had a small business... Very, very successful engineering business. Um, And so he was really someone who made a lot of himself through this lens of business. And and to be honest with you, even though I wanted to become a lawyer, I had no lawyers in the family. Now, interestingly, my middle sister went on to do law. Oh, really? Become a solicitor at Minter Ellis. Ellis, But, like, reality is I didn't have anyone at the time that was, like, who was a lawyer. It was just, like, I think I was heavily influenced by law and order, as I said. (laughs) Uh, And I just knew, like, and my mum, whilst she didn't run her own business, she ran a very, very large business in... my mum being a chef, she she had uh, she worked at Channel Nine. She worked at oh, Channel Ten. Oh, catering. She work. worked at absolutely and look at the Sciences Club. And then she uh, like probably the the ultimate of her working career, which was at about the time that I was at school, is she ran all of Melbourne University's food division. Oh my giddy aunt. Like yeah, literally huge. everything from the from the cafes to the Chancellor's boardroom, and everything in between was under her care. She ran a huge kitchen of thirty cooks and chefs and apprentices and stuff and I grew up in those kitchens you know I'd I'd sometimes miss school in inverted commas sick day and just go and hang out with her and I saw what an incredible role model she was and how she ran and mainly men and you know she just ran this kitchen like you know precision and it was just unbelievable and so uh, two things happen. I think both of those things influenced what I wanted to become, and also I ended up at Melbourne University as well because, of course, she spent many years running running the kitchens there, and I uh, had a lot of time on the campus. So, uh, yeah, I think it just influenced what my end choices were. Uh, even though I probably, like I said to you, I didn't get the marks to get into law anyway. No. But so, what did you uh, choose? But, but I, so I actually went to uh, Melbourne and did a new. Uh, degree there that was called Bachelor of Computer Science in Information Management. Wow. Now, I just want to say I'd never, ever been interested in computers. Like, I I don't even think I touched a computer before I got to uni. Wow. So how did you get in? What what made you want to do it? Well, because it was a new course, they were just taking students from various disciplines because they themselves were playing with what are we going to do with this. There was an equivalent course at Monash University called Information Systems, and so I think in the way that the big eight compete with one another, Melbourne felt that they had to have yes, something as well. Yeah. So it was like literally a brand new okay. course. 
And so really we were learning as well as the, you know, the, the faculties uh, that we were learning with. And what it really uh, just sparked for me was, and, and what I remember one of my favourite subjects was organisational systems. Um, Good God, this is just so outside my own personal realm of interest that I find it amazing. So organisational systems. And it's basically how organisations work and, and really around people and people dynamics. Oh. And it was where I started learning about systems thinking and ecosystems and how they work and the different actors. So this was very, very early days of what we now term as like HCD and systems thinking. That was sort of because, again, the university, I think, was playing around with different ideas of what this course needed to become. So, right. you know, I did the I, I learned to code in Pascal. And let me tell you, I've never used Pascal a single day. I don't day even know what it is other than I, I don't, it's just a right. language, a, a rando language. And <laughs> I, I reflect on those experiences now when I talk to, to people is that. You know, reality is that the things that I got really excited about really helped to shape what I wanted to do when I finished uni. And I uh, balked the trend of my non-studying ways from school and I almost got straight high distinctions at university. Right. Now, that's one because I was, I'm sort of a semi-competitive person and didn't quite, didn't like underperforming yep. in my result in year 12. And then also I just, it, I was so interested in what I was learning. It was that perfect, you know, collision of, where the subjects and the human are well matched. Yeah, right. And so other than computer science, which I never found that interesting, but I really loved the aspect of being able to build something. Yeah. And I, I loved being able to sort of teeter, like play with technology because I'd never done that before. And I'm, I'm quite a naturally curious person. I want to, you know, learn how things work and why they work in a certain way. And I always say to people, the fusion between human potential and technology is so hugely powerful. And I just knew that right from the word go when I when I started learning this at university. Wow. And it's taken another 30 years for you to uh, start your own business in it. But let's go back over those 30 years because partly because I think it's really interesting for any women or young women or girls who are listening to hear that it is not always a straight path into entrepreneurship. And, um, you know, we, we often think that we're going to love... So I've had three different, quite distinct careers along, along the way. So what, when you left uni, what was the first job? So interestingly, back to the uni degree, because it was a new one, what they were trying to do is also play with, and again, Monash did the same thing, play with this concept of hands-on learning or work-integrated learning. Okay. And this was back in like the 90s, yeah. right, the early 90s. So we had to do an internship as part of getting our degree. We had to do an internship. And so we had to apply to a number of organisations that kind of partnered with Melbourne yeah. to take students into intern programs as part of this degree. And Accenture took was taking one student. Right. And, and so I was... The, the lucky one. Um, the smart one. They, would, they, they, they well, make their decisions, you know, think I about it. you make your own luck, <laughs> yes. And I think my high distinctions did yes, help. Yes, of course. Uh, so, you know, that they, they do look at marks. But anyway, uh, so I ended up uh, doing an internship at uh, Accenture and I, the internship was only supposed to be, I think it was six months to get your tick in the box, but uh, I ended up doing 15 months with Accenture because, right. the, you know, I started work there and it was obvious that there was synergy between I loved working there and they were quite happy with what I was doing. So instead of the six months, they said, hey, why don't you stay on till you start uni again, your final year? And I did. I basically worked from the end of year two to the start of year four right? and, and did that full internship. And at the end of the internship, they offered me a graduate position 
Um, look, I did interview with a couple of other management consultancies, but there was nothing compelling for me to go there versus Accenture. Right. So I had my start group at Accenture. I had friends there already. And so it was, you know, I trod the, that path. I, I I did the management consulting graduate program or internship right. thing for seven. And I stayed with Accenture for seven years. Um and then I left because I, I think I realised, really, to be honest, and I still have many colleagues yeah. at Accenture from those, back in those days, but I just realised for me, as I looked up the tree and I started to think about, I've always wanted a family. Like, I've, I just knew that I wanted to be a mum and, and also work. I, I never thought I had to choose. To choose yeah. But one of the things that I didn't see was any female partners that had children that allowed them to have the work-life balance. So the few female partners that were there at my time, and there literally were only about two or three, either had stay-at-home husbands or uh, had a nanny or someone else. So that's just, that just didn't work for yeah. me. There were no role models within that organisation, within Accenture at the time. Of course it's changed mm. now, but at the time there wasn't. And I thought, well, I'm kidding myself. What's the point of working towards that when I know it's not for me? And and so therefore I made the hard choice to say, actually, I want to have my cake and eat it too, but I don't think I can have that here. So I decided to move into industry because there was nothing that made me think there was going to be any different at any other management yeah. consulting company. So what do so, you mean by move into industry? What industry were you going to go into? Well, literally move into the client side rather than the, you know, the, the and, provider. And was there a niche? Were you so. working with a particular type of client, manufacturing or banking or? Uh, it was technology. Okay. I worked in tech because I was a tech yeah, grad. So <laughs> we worked and, and I worked in telecommunications. So a lot of my time at, at Accenture was working with Telstra as a client. Ah, okay. Um, but actually, you know, my spark around travelling was awakened and I thought if I'm going to leave Accenture, I may as well go and, you know, do the global thing. So I actually moved to London right. and I ended up working for British Airways. Oh, so nice. I, it was my first foray. It was the first time that I realised two things. First of all, that Accenture, having Accenture on your CV opens yeah. doors. So literally I didn't even have an interview for this job that I ended up getting. The guy literally looked at me and said, I don't need to interview you. I know you're a high performer. You've spent seven years at Accenture. Nice. But what I want you to do is to tell me how you're going to solve this problem for me. And obviously I was able to appropriately persuade him yeah. that I could do a good job and, and he brought me on. And the other lesson that I learned at the time was just how much of a cocoon Accenture was. <laughs> you know, I was a, I was basically, uh, I think I was 26 years old at the time. And I was asked to run a program, like a, my first project. I didn't know it was a project, but my first kind of real project manager role, which of course then defined the rest of my career almost. But And I had to run these 40 people. We were doing this implementation. It was a custom system implementation, a bit like SAP. So it was an accounts receivable, accounts payable package. Right. And I had all of these much older people, subject matter experts that were so... Um, well, they were more experienced and they knew everything that was there was to know about this thing that we were doing and I had no idea. <laughs> I literally had no idea. I just had will and I wanted to do a good yep. job. And so I'd sort of speak about that time, that two years at British Airways being one of the most career-defining moments for me because it was the time that I made the transition from a really high-performing, cocoon, bubbly type of environment like Accenture where – you're told what processes to follow. You're told how to, you know, what to wear, what not to wear, what to say, what not to say. You're working with these clients, but you've got all this infrastructure around you. You know, you've got a, a manager, then you've got a partner, then you've got a the whatever. Yeah. 
here I was literally on my own and it was, Renata, what are the answers? And I was literally going, oh, my God, I don't know what the answer is. But, you know, that imposter syndrome and I can't be seen to not know what to say and I realised quickly that I can't be that false person. Like don't put a veneer up and pretend like you know everything. Actually just put your hand up and say, I don't know, but can we talk about it as a group because the the answer will be amongst us. And that's where I really started to understand this concept of servant leadership as well is as the leader, I didn't have to have the sword drawn and have all the answers and pretend. Actually, I needed to tap into the collective wisdom and potential of the people that I'm working with and enable them to be amazing. And by virtue of doing that, everything gets done and I look okay as well, right? Yeah, nice. It was such a big learning for me. It was a really pivotal time in my career and I look back on that being, you know, still in my 20s and, and have the, having these learnings. It was really incredible. Amazing. So. Um, how, other than that, how were, was it being in England? I mean, I went to London, I would guess, somewhere around the same time and I was talking about it with someone else in a podcast saying, I, I didn't find it easy to make friends. I went over there going, I am an outgoing person. I'm smart. I've got fam. I've got family all over the UK. Um, it's going to be really easy. And it just wasn't. Look, I was really lucky. Um, I had several really um, close Accenture colleagues ah. that had were either over in the UK that I had worked with or that were going to the ah. UK. So that's the other thing I talk about really a lot to people, particularly now that I'm running programs back into the management consulting world, world is really encouraging people to understand the power of the community that yes. they're in. I don't think you realise the power of the community, of the peer group, of the friends that you're making, of the people that I still keep in contact with with 35 years after I started at Accenture, I still have those friends and colleagues. It's the power of that, of that, you know, friendship and relationships and connection. You really get to use it and leverage it. I agree. But I also think that if you have a great organisation, and I can only say that the culture at Accenture must have been pretty good for you all to have bonded in the way that you did. Um, And I know my first job was with um, a publishing company and we still have reunions. And that's, you know, from the cleaning lady and the tea lady up to the woman in accounts through to the, uh, this was all newspapers, but we still catch up. We have a little Facebook group that's all ex-employees of, and I mean, the guy who owned the business is dead now, but it doesn't make any difference if you are good at fostering that kind of a culture where people feel like it's a family, it lasts forever. Jules, you know, there's a there's a, uh, a saying, isn't it, the tie that binds? Yeah. And I, I just, I, I'm with you and I want to really draw on one word that you used, which is often balked at, but I think it's at the crux of what we're describing and that's this concept of creating a yes. family. You know, often I in my leadership journey I've been told by people, but you're not my family, I, you're just someone I have to work with. If we can find a way as leaders and in cultures within organisations to create this sense of family, to create this sense of connection, because we know what family defines for us. It's people that we would do anything for. Yes. Even on bad days. Well, I was going to say, and we argue with them and it's not all perfect. Of course we do. But it's that underneath it there is a core of respect and appreciation and love. And love. And love, right? We said it at the same time. What are we scared of yeah. where we don't want to love each other at work? I just uh, never really understood the problem with that. It doesn't, it's not creepy love. It's the sort of love where you feel that the person that you're working with you or care people about that you're them. working with, 
you have their back. They have your back. You care about them. You will do stuff for them. And it's also that, that right yeah, and I do. think it's that understanding of if you work in an organisation like that and someone gets cancer or their mother dies or even their dog dies and you know them well, you know how devastating it would be and you are able to empathise and offer comfort and all those sorts of things that, you know, if you're if you're all just nameless numbers, then who cares if somebody's going through something awful, you know? And, and that's what makes them 100%. stick around. I mean, that you, how many times have you ever spoken to someone that said, this awful thing happened and my boss or my company was amazing? And you think, you're never going to leave because the, they have just shown you how much you matter to them. Loyalty. And, look, it comes out in all of the... Data, all of our all research, the, stuff, the people yeah. who stay, right, the people who stay feel that connection, feel that, you know, world of me, world of we, I matter, my development matters, who I am matters, you see me, you hear me, you acknowledge me, you're grateful for me, all of those things. It's not that I'm the best Excel expert or I write the no, best report. No, that's right. You, you know, can get another that, one of those. What pe- exactly. And that's not the tie that binds. No, no. no. That's a, I'm loving this conversation and where it's going. Okay, so where are we now? You've done Accenture and you've done BA. Where, how long right. did you come back to Australia after that? And what, what was the next step in your I, I career did. and your life? I, I did. Look, um, you know, quite late in life, my parents divorced. Oh. Which is, uh, I guess, a little bit unusual. But Not anyway, now it isn't, I don't uh, think, but it probably was when... At the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. And particularly uh, my parents, you know, in our community, in the sort of Russian-Ukrainian community, it just wasn't really no, done. I and so um, I came back to actually just provide some support right. and, and try and, and help, uh, you know, through that uh, because, again, they'd been married for a long time and it wasn't the done thing. So I came back and I've always been, um, you know, not dutiful, but I've always felt a sense of the... the um, the duty, uh, you know, thank thankfulness towards my parents and uh, really seeing the role that I need to play. It's got to be a two-way street. And so uh, I came back and, uh, you know, uh, just I, I tread the uh, contracting thing for a while okay. just as I settled in and uh, I didn't really have a home base to come back to because, I, I you know, I worked for British Airways. They don't have a Melbourne yeah, office. Right. So, um so I just sort of worked out what I wanted to do, but I, I was drawn back to uh, what I love to do in London after I worked out how to do it, and that is project delivery, project management, leadership of teams. Yep. Uh, so I ended up doing some work for Telstra again because, again, that was the known space for me and, you know, I had great experience um, and some good skills. So uh, they brought me back and I led, you know, I went back into technology. So I led team of, you know, system builders and you know, various bits okay. and pieces, testers. So I did stay in tech for a while. But, again, then I wanted to branch out and do business transformation stuff. I think the tech stuff uh, kind of served me well, but I was really always very – and back to the uni days of the organisational systems is how do you actually help organisations just uh, be more productive yep. and work better, you know, systems. Anyway, and so I, I found myself being drawn more towards uh, this, this sort of concept of business transformation. Still working with tech as being an enabler because i would seen how powerful tech is uh, when done well, also when not done well, so that's good too. <laughs> uh, but then I really wanted to use it and put it to good use around business transformation. But I always knew that it was people, process and tech. Yeah. And one of the things that really stood out for me was why in organisations do we always focus on tech and process 
and the people stuff, you've got to bleed through your eyes to convince people that we also have to do transformation work with the people to make the most of the process and the tech. Yeah. And so a lot of my career was defined by going from role to role to role. And I say to people, I had nine roles in eight years. So I was nearly at NAB for nine years. So I had about nine roles in that wow. time. Because NAB, NAB loves a restructure. But anyway... <laughs> Uh, I had, you know, I started roles and I tried to bring this to life. But what about the people? But what about the people? If it's not with the people, then the tech and the process doesn't work. And, you know, it, if I if I was to say one de, one defining thing for me in every role I've ever had is I kept having that goddamn conversation of, but what about the people? What about the people? What about the people? And I guess for me, you know, I, I spent some time at NAB. I was at Latitude Financial Services. So I, I had some really senior roles. I was a general manager, led hundreds of people, P&L responsibilities. Okay. But I guess really what, what became compelling for me is I got sick and tired of having the conversation, what about the people? <laughs> and I decided that I was going to do something about the people, but it couldn't be from within an organisation. Right. It had to be working with organizations and helping them to upskill their people because within organizations we know it becomes really political and then it's a bun fight and then the minute you start to get some change across the line there's a restructure yeah. and then there's new leadership. Or you might need to just... leave or they might ask you to leave and you have to leave it behind. But I just want to ask 100%. you, was there a light bulb moment? I mean, you've talked about, you kept on talking about it and you never got a satisfactory answer, but was there something that tipped you over that went, you know what? I'm actually going to go and start my own version of this because I'm just fed up asking the same flipping question. Look, Jules, I, I wish that I could paint uh, <laughs> a, a fairy tale uh, answer to that. But reality is this. I got sick and tired yeah. of working for people that didn't inspire me. That if you want the cold hard truth around it, not only did it feel lonely to be the person that was often the only person saying what about the people with other people rolling their yeah. eyes, there she goes again uh, talking about people and their potential and why aren't we Making uh, the most know, of thinking it. about how, how we're going to get people to actually um, take up from a ways of working point of view the very things that we're spending so much money changing. <laughs> yes. uh, that was an aside from a, from a world of we point of view, others, but for myself personally... I probably got to a crisis point in my career where I was heading towards the age of 50 and I found myself in a continued spiral of I'm not sure that I'm overly inspired by the leaders around me and how long can I continue to do this and pretend like that's okay. Yeah, right. Wow. Okay. So, um, so what would the, tell me about the steps of starting your own business. So you leave the job. Did you have a business plan or, or an idea at that stage? No. no. And remember I told you that whole, what's the worst that could yes. happen mindset that I've had pretty much from a young age. It kicked in again. Yeah. And look, the, you know, when I first uh, thought about what I was going to do next, cause I knew I wasn't going to continue on in corporate right. for the time being, I thought, all right, well, maybe I'll go back to my roots, management consulting, right? Like I've, I've worked for Accenture. I've worked with all of the big management consultancy houses as a client. And, you know, I kind of know how that stuff works. Um, so I teetered on that for a little while, had a few conversations and just realised, I think it I think it reminded me of, of the fact that I probably uh, love working with and I do currently work with some amazing organisations, but I'm probably not made for the in the organisation. Yeah. I'm made for the with the organisation type of a model. Yeah. 
Because first and foremost, I really, I've got 10 to 15 years left, Jules, and I want to make a massive impact. Yep. I want to make a massive impact and I and and I it reminded me of the constraints unfortunately that people face into the reality check as I like to describe mm. it when you work within an organization and and I love these organizations and they do so much good and they cha- they lead so much change but I felt that I was going to be constrained in the impact that I wanted to make globally right and so I decided that I needed to back myself I needed to believe in the fact that I uh, had really good experience running teams, really good experience running projects, really good experience standing up technology. I know how to build a team and I want to put all the research and the development that I've done into myself yep. into the hands of other people yeah, nice. through this democratisation lens. So for me, just I, I guess I, maybe I just it had an epiphany at 2 o'clock in the morning that I don't remember in a dream, but it, it just became more and more clear to me as I started to talk to people and work out what I wanted to do. I was lucky I had some mentors as well that I could bounce ideas off and just share what I was thinking. Yeah. A couple of people that I wanted to go into business with and they thought you know some of my ideas were really great but weren't ready to take the leap themselves. So I think through the process of conversation, reflection, I did a lot of reflection. I did mind mapping, I did drawing, I did scribble of what I wanted to do and how it would look and then decided I was going to back myself and uh, let me tell you that it was not an easy decision to make because someone who was, you know, well paid, easy street really as I look back on it, even though I thought it was the hardest work I'd ever done. Be careful what you wish for. Um, be careful what you wish for. And I've had to put, you know, I bootstrapped the business for three and a half years. So that's not for the faint hearted no. from a financial point of view. Uh, but so, you bounce you know, out of bed I, in the morning knowing that you've got control of something and that you can make a change to people's lives. 100%. And boy, just, just, that just makes it all worthwhile, I think. 100%. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Okay. Um, one of the things that, <clears throat> I've disco- discovered over 250 interviews I think I've done now is wow. the burnout that a lot of women who are very passionate because we are in in general most business women that I'm talking to anyway are very purpose driven they want to make that change happen in the world um and as a, and they're doing something they love and they can, they can see the difference they're making and so it makes it very hard for them to pull back and give themselves a break, give themselves and their brains some time out. And some of the stories I've heard have been terrible about people kind of, you know, being in bed for a year because they got adrenal fatigue because they've pushed themselves too hard. So anyway, all of that is getting me around to the question of how are you juggling work and life when it's something that you love so much? And it's obviously very, very big, your your vision how are you doing that juggle? Do you, what days do you take off? When do you give yourself a break? Oh, wow. So, look, Jules, to be honest with you, I've always worked this way. You know, certainly I will say I've worked harder now than I have ever in my career, but I've always uh, worked right. hard. Being a working mother, you get that discipline very, very <laughs> yes, early. So I, I was a mother at 29. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, like I said to you, I wanted to have my career. I only made it eight months before I needed to go back to work. And, I, and I'm talking about needed, not financially, needed mentally. from my own perspective, mm-hmm. mentally and from my career point of view. 
Uh, I was able to do that because I had an incredible support from my own mother. Mm-hmm. So my mother helped me uh, because had I have had to have chose ch- chosen sort of full-time care for daughter. Uh, my daughter at the time, I don't know that I would have made the same decision. So I was able to – and look, at the time I decided I was going to go back part-time and so I tried that um, – Look, there's just a number of things that I've always done. But as I said to you, from the age of 29, I knew the way I needed to work and find my own work-life balance. And I used to always get annoyed with people who used to try and label me as a workaholic. Oh, you're sending emails at 11 p.m. Well, it's not because I need you to respond to those. That's the way I'm choosing to work. But you don't know that between the times of 6 and 9 p.m. I'm with my children. Well, I guess that's more of my question to you is how are you, how did you, are you, slash, um, um, making sure, so like a weekend sacrosanct, uh, evenings 6 till 9 or whatever, has there ever been that? Or you've just gone in all, all guns blazing? all day and all night until you just feel like you need to take a break. What, what are you doing? And, and I think it's the latter, right. Jules. So I've never been like, a, and now from now, from here to here, I'm not going to, so I'm a very flexible person. I absolutely always, as I said to you, carry this. What's the worst that could happen? Just take things as they yep. come. My husband sometimes describes me as just like a rando, like, you know, <laughs> the, the and, and ironically, I'm actually a project manager, so planning is really important to me. But do you know what I mean? I think you got you get that you can't plan everything, no. and the minute you try and plan things, it, every things Murphy's go off law. track. So yep. everything's going to go right. wrong. Now, I should also say my husband's been a great support. He's always seen uh, what I've wanted in my career and been really supportive. And he's had to make sacrifices as a result. So we've done it as a team. It definitely does take a village, and he's part of my village. My parents, yeah, others who have really helped me, but I've had to fight for a lot of things. I've had to fight for equity and inclusion and being seen. I lost five years of my career with my maternity leaves and coming, stopping and starting in the various guises of my working life. But that's okay. I don't, I don't, I'm not upset about that. That's a, that's a sacrifice that I was willing to make so that I could have my cake and eat it too. I'm really philosophical about that i've never been militant about anything i've never really again maybe it's because i'm the kid of migrants i don't really expect things i don't have an entitlement around anything i just kind of try and be as flexible as i can be and take things for what they are read my body be mindful if i need to take a break like if i need to take a break and sit on the couch with my daughter to watch tv i don't feel guilty about that Good. It's just what I need to do yeah. and I don't make excuses for it. But I also don't make excuses for sending an email at one o'clock in the morning if I've woken up and I need to put something down so I don't forget it and send it. I don't expect you to respond at one fifteen a.m. But I need to work how I work yeah. and I don't make excuses for that. I don't know why anyone has to judge who I am and whether I'm a workaholic or not. Or not. Don't worry about that. You just be you and I'll be me. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I love, I think that's a, a very healthy attitude. Okay, look, we're running out of time and so I'm going to just ask one more question which doesn't have to be about work and it's just because I think it's funny and I'm nosy, which is, is there a quirky fact about you that most people don't know that you'd be up for sharing? Oh, well, I'm very, I'm very random. So my daughters tell me all the time, mum, that is so random. Right. Uh, how could you possibly say that like that? And, you know, so, so I'm... 
because I don't really take myself too seriously. I'm not really that worried. Um, you know, of course, I care what other people think, but only from the point of view is I hope people think I'm a good person and that I come across as respectful. That's always been really important to me. But otherwise, I'm kind but of But there's like no my... kind of you can't burp the alphabet or um, I don't oh, know. No. I've been on Bert Newton's Family Feud. Oh, my God. Have uh, you? That's I... a good one. Yes. Yeah, so that's a random thing I did when I was on mat leave the first time around <laughs> and I was bored waiting for my daughter to wake up from a sleep to feed her and um, you just applied. I was watching a, well I was watching a commercial and the commercial TV and the commercial said hey do you want to be part of Bert Newton's family feud ring this number now I what I grew up watching Tony Barber's family feud and I absolutely dreamed of being on the <laughs> like I just always wanted to be on that show so I left a message I said hey yeah we'd love to yeah anyway we got we, we got m- myself my two sisters and my sister-in-law that are all like you know, randos, we got invited to an interview and they thought we were so crazy. <laughs> they would have they loved you being on. Licking their yes. lips with excitement of what we were going to do on TV because we were so uninhibited. And, yeah, that sort of, yeah, that's kind of the rest is, is history. But we, we were, yeah, we made it through four rounds. Oh, wow. Did you win a whole lot of stuff? We didn't because we were actually beaten by the only family to have won $100,000 in that series. Right. We were the family that they beat. So, um, otherwise, you would have. Well, Renata, honestly, I've loved you from the moment I met you. And doing this interview today, I'm like, gee, we are so similar in so many ways, Um, (laughs) which I guess we knew anyway. We always knew. And I accept that you are going to do the most incredible things with MaxMe. And I can't wait till it's a big global company and you're teaching all this important stuff to kids and and adults around the world. So enough about that. How can people get hold of you or find out more about MaxMe without giving away phone numbers or email addresses? No, 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 Jules, look, I mean, you know, you'll find us at maxme.com.au. There's lots and lots of And it's M-A-X-M-E for anyone. It is M-A-X-M-E.com.au. And, you know, there's plenty of ways to get in touch. You're on LinkedIn. demo or I am on LinkedIn. You'll find me, Renata Squario and S-G-U-A-R-I-O. And I love talking to people. I get, you know, reach out to people all the time that just want to chat or want to know a bit more. So please reach out. It would be fantastic to to talk to people who see what we see, right? The the huge potential of workplaces that are defined by high EQ, highly upskilled humans uh, who are just wanting to be the best version of themselves every day. I want to work in those workplaces and I certainly want my children yes, to yes, work there as yeah, well. You're so right. Well, listen, thank you. You're just delightful and I can't wait to share this story. Um, and Thank you for not only doing the interview today but for doing what you're doing because I do think it's really important and um, and I love it that you, it's you that's leading the charge. So Thank you, Jules. My pleasure. Thank you. I've really appreciated, yeah, and, and enjoyed the conversation. So thanks for having my me. My absolute pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of She's the Boss Chats. For more information and to find out about our other initiatives, including our weekly lunch for female founders and our TV show, go to she'stheboss.com.au. 